0: Smart Counsel is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com smartcounsel. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Ben Poling is a counselor at a New Day Counseling Center in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in identity, relationships, and sexual addiction. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council, traumatized by religious abuse. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Passimio.
1: And I'm Ben Polling,
0: And we are joined in the studio, and the actual studio today, by the one and only Connie Baker. Connie, how are you doing?
2: Great. Great to be here. I'm glad. I, I'm not sure I'm the one and only, but we're just going to run with that.
0: <laughs> You're our favorite. There's that. <laughs> okay, there yes. you go. our favorite Connie Baker. <laughs> cool. So we're going to be talking with you, Connie, about trauma and about your book about it. Um, Our podcast, I... I I stole the title of your book for the title of the episode because we're wanting to talk about a little bit about your book and a lot of the, the concepts in it. Sounds great. Excellent. So before that, though, um, please do uh, introduce yourselves to our audience. Okay. Who are you? What do you have to do with counseling and okay. uh, all that?
2: I'd be happy to. Um, I am a therapist and have been in this field now for uh, about 15 years and love my work. I do a lot of trauma work, uh, primarily under the umbrella of, of three different things. Religious abuse, domestic violence, and intimate betrayal. So and so, just a little bit of light reading there, yeah. Oh my <laughs> goodness, yeah. And unfortunately, they connect, and that really is not light reading. Right. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> um, yes, I, I tend to go for the heavy-duty stuff, but it's, um, it's a joy to be able to work with people in this arena. And I'm also a wife and a mom and a stepmom and an avid reader and all kinds of fun things like that.
0: So that does sound really fun. What are what 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 are you reading right now?
2: Oh right now, I don't know. Oh, I don't know if I want to confess what I'm reading right now. <laughs> it's a really intriguing but disturbing book called um 42 Laws of Power. Ooh. Oh it is wild. I guess I found out they don't have they don't let this book into prison libraries. Really? It's like how to gain personal power. And I was looking at it, and we got it thinking it looked interesting. And I keep telling my husband, "This is disturbing. This is the book that my my um, the husbands of the, who are the domestic violence offenders must have read. <laughs> I mean, it's oh, really well, intense, right. crazy, crazy little thing. I'm reading right now. I don't usually read that kind of stuff. I usually read more therapy. You know, books, brain science, that sort of stuff. And a lot of good fiction. Uh-huh. Harry Potter, come on. Oh goodness. I, I love mean, it. And Lord of the Rings. I'm 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 a big nut for both of those. So
0: That sounds excellent. I'm yes, yeah, speaking Harry Potter, so me super nerding out. So I'm I finally bit the bullet and decided, Okay, I'll figure out what this Enneagram thing is. So I'm audio booking my first Enneagram book. Oh my and goodness. It, yeah. And it occurred to me. A, I think counseling ruined the Enneagram for me because as they're talking about the nine types, I'm like, oh, there's an attachment disorder, there's an enmeshment <laughs> <Totally>. pattern.
2: <Right. laughs> uh, oh, there's a personality disorder. There's a yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so then I thought, hey, I could take like all the Harry Potter characters through this.
2: Oh, my gosh.
0: There you go. I'm sure somebody's already done it, but anyway. Oh, that's
2: hilarious, <laughs> yes. You, you've gone down the black hole, the rabbit hole of the
0: Enneagram, for yes. For sure. Mm-hmm. It is black and a hole. <laughs> So, but uh, anyway, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us. Absolutely. And uh, we are also very excited you've recently released a book. I did. Do you tell us a bit about what that is and um, what's the book, what it's about?
2: Yes. Well, I can give a, a hopefully brief overview of kind of just some basic content structure and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, it's called Traumatized by Religious Abuse Hope, Courage, and Freedom for Survivors and Courage, Hope, and Freedom. There, let's get that right. I should know my title. Um, So, yes, I have been... This is a book that honestly has been percolating for probably 14 to 15 years. Um, I actually wrote some of the first structure of one of the chapters around 15 years ago, and just, it's been developing since then. The last two years, I've gone... Well, but been now two and a half, been very steadily writing it. And so... Through the years, ah, this information has just kind of developed as I have looked at my personal story, which we can talk about in a bit, as well as worked with so many religious abuse survivors. And so the first part of the book is my story, and I talk a bit about that. Um, the second part is a structure of how the sequence of religious abuse happens, uh, having to do... Uh, how um, the idea of infallibility is leveraged for power and control in people's lives. And then the second section, we talk, um, we well, I define religious abuse and define power differential, which is a really uh, a foundational idea to any abuse, is where one person has more power than another person, um, and how that can end up becoming abusive. So, um, and then I, in the second section, I also talk about characteristics of an abusive system, uh, characteristics of an abusive leader, and uh, religious, uh, religious excuse me, spiritually abusive messages. I've really, in that section, I don't know another book that has tried to make very concrete and structured, what does this thing called religious abuse look like? So I tried very hard to do that. Um The next section, uh, I talk about the fallout. What is the impact on the survivor when they go through uh, spiritual abuse? What are the trauma triggers that are extremely um, confusing, being reactive to things like a church service or prayer or the Bible or uh, any other number of religious uh, ideas or events? Um, And also in that section, uh, what is the spiritual fallout? What is the 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 existential and spiritual impact of going through that. So and then in the last section I try to talk <laughs> as much as possible in, in condensed terms about how do you get better, how do you heal up? Because it is a as any abuse, it's a long, confusing journey and it has its own flavor of a long, confusing journey to get better. Absolutely. To heal.
0: I never want to minimize anyone's experience of abuse and there's probably a low productivity in productivity in like comparing this or that. Yeah. Although I do get the sense that some abuses hit deeper. Yeah. And like like there's nothing good about physical abuse, no. but there's like extra bad about like sexual abuse. Yes. And even extra bad about spiritual abuse. Yep. Just because it gets to the very soul and like yep. those untouchable parts.
2: Yes. Absolutely. And uh, like you say, in some ways, they're apples and oranges, but there is, I want to validate that very unique part. Part part of this that's so important to me is that we as a culture don't have a structure or language or a paradigm yet for what is religious abuse. And so my my passion and my heart was to write a book to try to to give words to that and to give structure to it. You know, 60 years ago, we didn't, as a society, we did not understand sexual assault and sexual abuse. We didn't have words. We knew something wasn't quite right. If a dad you know, touched his daughter wrong, we knew that was bad, but uh, that, that ain't right. But we don't know quite what to call it or, or what it is. Now we understand, we understand the grooming, the entrapment, the the horrible fallout from that abuse. We don't have that paradigm yet for religious abuse. When I it's so it's been so interesting, In the last 10 years, people will ask me, um, you know, I'll tell them I'm uh, work with the topic of religious abuse. And there's so many blank stares, like, what does that mean, you know? And the news gets all the sexual assault in religious circles. And that, that's, I'm glad that's coming out, but that's just one piece of a very big pie. So that's, that's my heart is to how do we, how do we define and look at this thing and find common language for it?
0: I love that that's happening, giving language for things. I mean, it's a major part of what we as counselors do. Yes. We can't always like fix people, but we can at least... Say here's here's how you can understand. You can understand what's happened to you, and having words to talk about it is extremely empowering. Yes, it is. So yes, I'm very excited to dive into what religious abuse is and how to recognize it. But mm-hmm. I just I do want to linger a little bit more just on on the book itself, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've, as I've really enjoyed reading it and reading through like your story, and I love that you can put some of your story in there. I think it can definitely be a testimony of like hey these things are these, these things are bad they happen but they're not the end either. Right. You know? I'm
2: okay. I'm thriving. Yeah. <laughs> you can get better. Absolutely it, yeah. you can. And that's that I hope that when people hear I sometimes think you know, when I'll do a live broadcast or write something, it's almost—it's almost sometimes isn't needed what I say. They can just say, "Oh my goodness, she survived it, and look at her; she's doing fine. Right. <laughs> There's hope."
1: Very <laughs> much. Yes, yeah, so good to have that message of hope.
2: Yes, the hope is a big deal. Yeah.
0: Um, the way you write it too is just very like invitational. Like you know, here here's my story. Let me invite you into a conversation over it. Also, here's a lot of tools. <laughs> Which, you know, it seems like it would be a really great one to, to hand to a client um, yeah. or potentially also to like a, like a clergy person. Oh, um,
2: I would so. love if clergy read this book. I would give them a big hug if they read this book. <laughs> <laughs> I really, all the survivors are like, do you have something for, for religious leaders? And I said, well, this book would be really good. And a lot of the ones that really need to read it will not. <laughs> right. You know, but but I think there's a lot of clergy who just could be really benefited by, by putting for for them to put it from their angle in uh language to it and structure to it and say, Oh, I need to remember how much power I do have mm-hmm. and to and to really guard that and watch that um and utilize that productively and carefully and I'd love it, yes.
0: I would love that too. Yes, uh, wouldn't all right. we all? <laughs> so then Uh, Diving into the topic. So what is religious abuse or spiritual abuse Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to any other kind?
2: Yes. And I use those words interchangeably. Um, Religious, spiritual. um, I I think there's some people who take a little issue with defining them and that's fine. I think you could, but I'm going to use them interchangeably. It is uh, Religious abuse is uh, just like any other type of abuse in that Power, one person or institution or entity has more power than an individual and leverages that power destructively. Religious abuse takes God and religious ideas and leverages those to create more power, to, uh, to hurt, to manipulate, control, suppress, weaken, silence, all those, all those things so that somebody... Uh, that the person with less power is rendered even more powerless.
0: The power differential resulting in people being rendered powerless. Yes. Yeah. Leveraging God, leveraging spirituality as kind of a collateral here.
2: Right. So, for instance, uh, if somebody wants to control another person and bully them, the bottom line is, listen, do this because I said so. In religious abuse, this is do this because I said so, because God said so. Mm-hmm. And I'm now leveraging God to tell you to get you to do what I want you to do.
0: Right, with the added bonus of, and by the way, if you don't, you're probably going to hell.
2: Right, exactly. Or so, God's going to be really pissed off. Something at you. like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think I've heard... So the only other book I've really read on this was, uh, and it's an older, older classic, it was um, The subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse oh, by big like, Jeff Van, yes. Van Verner, mm-hmm. Um which was really revolutionary for me at the time that I read it. But it was either in that book or somewhere else where they talk about a, a very specific result of spiritual abuse, that it's it turns a person away from God or turns a person away from their own spirituality.
1: Oh,
2: my goodness. Totally. It, it wrecks it, it the 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 abuser bec- then becomes the image of God that you know the 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 spiritual leader or person with power is leveraging God so the victim or the survivor says oh my goodness that must be what God is like and what does that do to a spirit and a soul it's very destructive
0: definitely I'm thinking about um, thinking about where I see this show up in with clients you know mm-hmm. there's a lot of attachment dynamics that go on here. You know, someone saying, you know, my dad was abusive, my dad was absent, my mom was enmeshed. You right. know, this, this, or that, and then that gets conflated with, um, with how they how they see God, because we tend to have God imaged to us by our early attachment figures, and Absolutely. then you know, throw in like certain theological flavors over others that just emphasize the God is angry, God is this patriarch, God is. Uh, out to catch you and all of those yeah, yeah and it just uh, it, it gets really hard well, I mean <laughs> we won't get into theological debates too much but it gets really hard to parse out what is actually God versus what is the human representation of him that's probably been botched by some it, people it's a
2: mind trip for a survivor to try to to try to uh yeah parse that out and figure out what do I even think or believe anymore about God about People, anything, yeah. yeah, the spiritual realm.
0: Yeah, so one of the people I'm thinking about, you know, their their human figure, what what was apparent, a non-clergy. So thinking specifics here. So for religious abuse to happen, is it, can it just be like anyone leveraging God or 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 heaven or hell, or is spiritual abuse specifically coming from like spiritual leaders mm-hmm. or church leadership? That's
2: a great question. Um, uh, there are several contexts in which it happens, and so church is just one. Um, so a spiritual leader within a church, be that a pastor, a ministry leader, and I'm using church in a very, uh, because my uh, history is evangelicalism, I, I will tend to use those terms, but it can be a rabbi, you know, what whatever, a priest. Um, so yes, so cl- church is just one. But then you have marriages. Oh, Horrible stories of, of abuse in marriages where God is leveraged and spiritual abuse happens along with psychological and physical. Um, family systems, oh, all kinds. So so anybody who has power in the family can can be uh, potentially abusive on a religious level. And then you th- have things like non nonpro- nonprofit organizations, workplaces, small groups, um, mission organizations, um, schools. uh Oh, the list is long. Just about any institution where where religion is a part of the mix. So you can kind of take it from there. <laughs> uh, so,
0: yeah, it really mm-hmm. could be anywhere. But anywhere where everybody is f- pursuing a similar spiritual yes. tradition and holds to similar values and similar fears, it could Correct. all be manipulated there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it was going to default to being like, okay, awesome. You know, uh, conversation filler, not awesome. So, <laughs> uh, mindful speech, race. mindful speech. <laughs> <coughs> I love it. Okay, so, so that, that's good to know. Religious abuse its not specifically tied to the faith community or the spiritual community, but, but it is tied to having that spiritual component or that, that God figure, that higher power figure as, yes. as part of the mix.
2: And, and most of the clients I work with and even my friends and myself, it's often multiple layers of that you know for me it was my family academics even though my family actually was semi functional in many ways <laughs> uh, quite more functional than many um uh, r- religious rigidity was very much a part of that structure so i had the church uh the my family i had schooling throughout uh I know there's some small group situations where things were really abusive. You know, so for any one individual, it could be quite layered.
0: Absolutely. So then, so so that's essentially what it is. Like in in other abuses, there's the power differential being exploited and specifically where, where God is the weapon here. And so... When we as clinicians are uh, talking with people in in the client rooms, um, how, would, how would we go about recognizing it, diagnosing mm. it? What should be some telltale signs to watch for? Oh, man.
2: Mm-hmm. There, there are many. I, it, it's going to depend. L- let me say this. I'm going to speak to people right now who are, I think there's two categories of therapists here that I'd like, to, and I think they are going to, need some different types of insight one uh, let's start with the people who are still very um committed faithful believers who who are in have a spiritual life and are probably connected with some type of organized religion either go to church somehow um that group of people it, there's, there's upsides and downsides to this, to both, both sets. This set, the big upside is they get the subculture of the religious community. They, they innately, they're in it, they, they understand if they're willing to admit the subtle power issues that go on and if they're willing to acknowledge those, there's a real plus for having been in the system um, or currently in it. Um, the downside to it is it can poke our defensiveness, mm. and it can really, we can start getting very defensive of the church or the religious institution that we are a part of, and uh, just for therapists like all of us, we, we get to watch carefully for counter-transference at that point, um, because it may impact where our heart is and where our loyalties lie, and that's not a bad thing that our loyalties may lie there. It's that we may not do good therapy if we we can actually re-abuse by minimizing, dismissing, re-not taking their framework,
1: mm, trying um, to defend the the church or the yes. institution or the religious leaders,
2: right. Any one of those, Ben. Yes, anyone. And that that defensiveness can become a really injuring to a client. The other thing is sometimes, on the flip side of that, we can be very insightful, but we also can be so close that we don't see it clearly. Mm-hmm. We don't see how weird <laughs> yeah. certain things in the subculture really are and how potentially destructive some of those things are. And so... Um, so, so when we do therapy, that's part of my heart for those people. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you
0: talk about that. And I, and just, by to, to, to illustrate that out of, out of my own life, you know, I, I, I have to confess, you know, when, whenever I come up upon this topic and a little bit reading the book, I, I recognize in myself, I, I did have this initial recoil to the topic, yeah. you know, not really wanting to def- defend the abuser, but more to say, oh, it can't be that bad. Yeah. it?
2: We don't want it. To I don't be want it to be that bad. bad.
0: I know, and I know it is.
2: But we don't want, it. and but I it, love yeah. that. I think that's a beautiful. That's almost a better description than I can give of it. That sense w- that pops up in us of of cred. I actually theoretically believe this, but I'm resisting it because I yeah. don't want it to be like this. Right, especially if it's a church. Or a religious organization that we know, right. or a family that we know. Right, it's high profile. Mm.
0: It's yeah, very high profile family. And part of the part of the inner turmoil, and especially I think for us that are, that are within the tradition, is we know the good parts about it. Yes. We know what it can offer, and maybe it's even more sad because we see that goodness being tarnished, and yes. sometimes in an irrevocable way, yes. which you know, and we don't want to see that happen. So yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: And for the other, the other a uh, set of people, the, the therapists who, who are not as familiar with organized religion. Um, I just had a great consult with a gal the other, uh, just a couple days ago on the phone. I loved it. I'd never met her, but she called because she knew who I was. And, and I loved dealing with her because she said, Connie, I don't really understand It's hard for me to even understand why people get involved in high-control religious groups, why they even would accept this. And she said, I know that. And she actually was doing a fantastic job with this client as I talked to her more. She was trying to keep herself very much out of it. But it's very difficult for those people. I I compared it to domestic violence. When I deal with a woman who is not willing to leave her marriage and is being harmed physically, emotionally, psychologically, or any combination, it's hard for me to sit there and say... What do you want to do about that? <laughs> right, you know, everything in us says get out. And from an outsider, that impulse—the upside—is they see some stuff very clearly. Like this is screwed up, and they're not defensive. <laughs> they're like, "Oh no, this is a big problem." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and the downside to it is that impulse to say. Why the heck would you stay in there like we do you know in, in a in a or or like a family situation? I explained to her d- from your angle, you need to see this as as somebody who's trying to break but isn't ready to break from a family unit mm-hmm. who we're sitting there thinking, this is so toxic, it's killing you, but we we're not going to as therapists say, here's what you have to do, at least I hope we don't <laughs> you know too, yeah so. so yeah, but be able to say, you know to step back and kind of breathe. (laughs) I kept saying, just keep breathing through it because it's so it's much in some ways, much harder for them to watch that level of control and destructive behavior and its impact because it's clear as a bell and crazy making to them. And so, yeah, so there's two different sets here. I think when I talk about how therapists I'm hoping therapists are dealing with it.
0: Absolutely. So that brings up, um, that brings up, um, here's a complex set of questions. Uh, you know, uh, I love the the comparison to uh, like domestic violence or, or an abusive abusive dyad, um, and and it's mysterious and baffling to us why people might yes. remain in a relationship like that. And we could, well, we could deal with sex and relationship addiction. We'll we'll talk about relationship obsession. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's also ways where you know sometimes we. The family is important, or the relationship is important, yes. you know, in spite of all odds, and, yes. and we want to hold on to it, yes. and and we might consider it wor- worth the cost, mm-hmm. which is is interesting, mm-hmm. but but within that, um, one question I, I would ask is: so we could recognize what is religious abuse in in a setting where um, faith and spirituality is, is a thing? Um, what? How can we parse out the difference between um, a, an abusive well, okay. Going so going back, going back to that um, that that relationship metaphor. Um, what would be the difference between a an abusive relationship that you should get out of versus this is a difficult relationship mm-hmm. and there's stuff you need to work through?
2: Mm. What you bring up is something that I stress over and over in the book is the idea of spectrum. Um, it, this is not an ab- abusive, a, a, a spiritually abusive church or a not a spiritually abusive church. Um, it's all on a spectrum. This is, and in marriages, it's generally not an abusive marriage or not an abusive marriage. We, we use subtly and overtly power in marital relationships all the time to get our way and to influence. And some of that on the spectrum is actually quite appropriate. And then other times it gets into that gray and darker gray area of, Ooh, that's hurting the other person. So, so I want to look at this in terms of a spectrum because I think your question uh, kind of opens that door. Um, yeah, people will ask me, Connie, tell me the churches in the area that are abusive. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's not happening. Although you could make money off of that list. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, man, I could have a lot more uh, uh, unneeded and unproductive conflict on my hands, <laughs> too. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, because it's not that simple, uh, there might be an, an institution that's basically functional and healthy, and they may have a ministry bubble within it that is highly control and abusive, you know, high control and abusive dynamics. And if the structure stay, stays healthy, it won't be there for long, but it will do damage while it's there. So I mean, it's it's multifaceted and it's on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So when do you leave? When do you stay? There's no perfect answer to that. I think, Part of this is taking into account your own personality. Where is your tendency? If I see a person who is very pliable, very flexible, very accommodating, um, saying, man, this really feels like it's hurting me, but, you know, I'm a loyal person, and I'm just going to stick that through, you know? Um, I, I'm, I'm listening because I'm concerned. I'm starting to get at least a red, uh, excuse me, at least a yellow Uh, light kind of flash in here and and it could go to orange because that person's whole mindset tends to be very adaptable. And by the time often they think they're getting hurt, they're hurt. (laughs) And then oppose that to people who don't like, you know, who just don't like being told what to do, who have a lot of kickback. You're talking about the Neagram, you know, Enneagram 8s, you know, don't mess with me. <laughs> and I love them. I love them. Um, so you've got the kickback, you know, if somebody who kicks back or is extremely avoidant and backs out at conflict immediately and never says, oh, I'm just out, forget this. You hurt my feelings, I'm done with the relationship. Then, if you've got that sort of person, that's a different conversation to me and a different lens mm-hmm. to say what might need to be cultivated in each of those people, mm-hmm. uh, th- th- each of those types of people to approach the idea of staying or leaving. I took that a little different direction, but does that make sense? That makes
0: absolute sense. Uh, you know, considering people who will hold on. Too much, yes. Too long, and, too much, um, and not for healthy reasons. Not strictly because of belief or loyalty, but maybe more because of insecurity, obsession. You yeah. know, and on the other end of that spectrum, people who don't hold on at all mm-hmm. and, and avoid too much. Yes. You know, and it's it's a different set of problems.
2: Yes, it's a different set. Yeah. So to me, it's quite individual. Yes, it's quite, uh, and it's always very messy because you're, uh, as you said before, we're we're dealing with deep loyalties. This is our community. To leave. To leave a religious institution that we have given our souls to, given our blood for, and uh, love the people there, have done life with them, the stakes are so high. To, and the loss is so multi layered mm-hmm. to do so. And so uh, it's a very messy, complicated question to stay or leave. And then you've got, if you've got a married couple where one's saying, I want out, and the other, you know, <laughs> right. saying, I want to stay, then it gets even, you know, it, it can be, yeah, let's just say there's no perfect answers to that question. But I do think there there are things, and there, I, I think in the book, an awareness of what does abuse look like uh, on an objective level, uh, on a, a, a level where you can define it very clearly, I think that helps to go, oh... This felt normal, but it's not. This is not okay. That this idea, this message, is being consistently put in uh, to the mix in this religious organization.
0: Yeah, and I'm wondering, um, bits of advice we might offer to to clinicians or to to non clinicians who might be listening and, and maybe thinking about their own experiences, wondering, huh, is my situation abusive? Should I should I be concerned? Um, and I can imagine, well, I have a couple, a couple ideas and, and you can add some more, tell me what you think, but it seems like maybe, maybe one good idea to consider if you're thinking you might be in a, an abusive situation is you maybe, maybe just take a break, you know, a mm-hmm. couple of weeks, a couple of months, yep. get a feel for some other flavors of faith community, you know, maybe your same denomination just to, just to get some perspective
2: or just take a break and well, not look at other flavors, just get team. a little space. Or yeah. Either, either one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, see, see what you see. Um, One of the other things I think too is that, um, you know, some some people will opt to say, "Okay, I want, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with it." Maybe it's maybe it's problematic. Maybe it's even abusive. But for for like you know, purpose of you know, higher calling or something, you know, I want to remain in it. Maybe I have kids in it or something. Mm -hmm. Um, That's gonna that's gonna be really emotionally, psychologically, spiritually taxing, no doubt. You know, I'd look for. Well, do you have a comparable source of nurture back? Like if you're being depleted by this one thing and you're kind of invested in it, are you at least getting sufficient nurture from somewhere else?
2: Yes, I love the idea of nurture. And I also like the idea of even um, within that context, getting more clear on your own personal boundaries. You might not leave, you know, you might not make a physical exit, but how might there be areas that you need to pull back, that you need to shift relationships within that institution, um, uh, move away from some, maybe toward others, and do those sort that sort of boundary work, even while you stay, kind of like a, well, back kind of, again, kind of like a family or a marriage, where you say, I'm, I'm, head, I'm doing Christmas this year. Uh, for four hours with my family instead of spending the night and, and a, you know, 24 full hours. I'm going to, I'm just, I'm coming by for three or four hours and I'm just pulling, I'm just doing some boundary work within that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think so. And related to boundaries, you could think expectations and, um, you know, similarly yes. to with, 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 a, with a married couple, if, you know, one partner has been acting out in a bunch of ways and the other per- person has been really hurt by that. You know, if the partner, if the, if the acting out partner is demonstrating signs of contrition, remorse, and like trying to make changes and at least staying in the process of, you know, trying to make changes, we might say that that's a hopeful sign, right? not a complete right. guarantee, but it's a sign of hope. And I imagine similarly in a, in a, in a community situation, if the community is at least open to seeing, yes. open to facing things.
2: Yes. I think I have a lot more hope for spousal and family change than I do because because the religious if there, if the religious institution is high control there's there's what I call a DNA about it. It has a history it has a history of that sort of culture within that community and the only way it's really going to change is from the top down. Mm-hmm. You cannot change it. the people without power, can't change it. I, I talk to clients and friends all the time. Well, I'm just going to write a letter to the pastor and tell him about this. I'm sure he'll be open. I'm like, "Oh, uh, cringe." Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm just thinking
1: of like s- systems theory and yes. how like, you know, for one part of a system to change the whole thing, it has to adapt. Yes. And good with point, ben. with uh, you know, a religious uh, group or church or whatever, you have a really big system. It's bigger yes. than just a family or a couple because yeah. there's so many people involved.
2: Right. And only if mom and dad change, is the system gonna change significantly, you know, and and throughout, and that I think because they're the ones usually, you know, with the power. And the, the most same, power. Yes, yeah. and that's where the leadership has to be ready to change, but in a high control environment, the power of the leadership is what they're wanting to hold on to. <laughs> so they're not going to be willing to say, oh, yeah, let's just give up power and and um, kind of flatline some more power differentials. They want the power, consciously or unconsciously. So. Uh,
0: so we've talked a little bit about what is religious abuse, what are the traits of it uh, in there. You, you had mentioned uh, religious messaging as one component of this. And so I'd love to dive a little bit into into that Um what is re- what what do you mean by religious messaging and and in particular um what are some what are some abusive messages that come across and and specifically like how is a how is uh, what is the difference between here's abusive religious messaging versus here's um a spiritual tradition that just demands a lot out of you and is just <laughs> difficult to practice anyway
2: Sure. I think the difference, I think there's a fairly easy differentiation there in that the issues of power and control, good spiritual practices, good productive spiritual practices are difficult. They (laughs) They are hard, but they don't hurt you. I think there's some, you know, abuse ends up hurting you. It's not just that it doesn't feel good, it does damage. Good healthy spiritual practices, however you want to define those, are um, they're going to be and end up being productive and growth oriented. Does that I don't know. Does that make sense? I, I feel like a- those those are a that that distinction. I think can be made. I've got a few messages here that I define in the book. Um, just for examples, is that okay? Yeah, that's great. Um, one of them is, uh, and these messages, by the way, can be subtle. Or overt, they can be explicit, impl- implicit, spoken, unspoken, um, denied, confirmed. So a lot of people say, "Well, they would never say that." Well, that is correct; they would not say that. But you, it's yeah. like it's like a family system.
0: <laughs> they would live it.
2: We know we know the rules in our family, whether they're ever said or not. So, yes. okay, so one of them is don't ask questions or don't question me or us in any way. So these are messages from the uh, power holders to the other people. Um, if you disagree with us, you will be blacklisted or punished. Uh, things like, oh, this is this is a big one. This is a heartfelt one for me. Don't trust yourself or your instincts. Trust me. Mm. I'm the spiritual or smart one. Mm. Oh, that's a leverage one all the time, and it makes me super sad <laughs> because it paves the way for further abuse.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really dicey.
2: Yeah, and so follow the rules, both spoken and unspoken, or you'll be punished by us or God. Um, and then I have what we also is a top down. Or inside out communication structure, um, in other words, the top of the of the hierarchy does not listen to the bottom. The bottom is supposed to only listen to the top, to the people with control. Um, there's uh, your worth is based on your per, uh, performance, service, and contribution rather than who you are. Um, oh, here's a big one. Um, you must forgive those who have hurt you and trust them again. Oh. Please, I know, most of us therapists, let's right. always differentiate between forgiveness and trust.
0: For sure. And I've, I've been having a running commentary on all of these in my head, but this one's worth, worth talking about too, because, and then part of what makes these so dicey is that there's some truth here. Like, forgiveness is good. Forgiveness good is thing. healthy. That's we in secular it
2: literature. Around. It's a good thing. Yes. Right.
0: Um, but there's a lot of ways that this really good thing gets so messed up and so thwarted
2: so And, and, and manipulators love combining forgiveness and trust. You need to forgive me. And now we need to be immediately back in relationship so I can control you. Right. And they're not going to say that last part, but yeah. <laughs> but that,
0: that's the thing. Yeah. No, no. accountability. Yeah. yeah.
2: Another message I'm thinking of is you have to be open and transparent with me, even if you don't feel safe. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's small groups. That can be dicey. So then you've got like things like shame on you. Shame is a huge leverage uh, in religious abuse. If you, oh, one of my favorites. If you say there is a problem, you are the problem, or you then become the problem. So you're going to be told if you come and say to the leadership, "Hey, I think there was a problem over here in this area," then it gets flipped back. Why are you saying this? You're a gossip. You're too sensitive. Um, you're out of line you have a spiritual problem so it gets flipped and that's i mean it's a classic gaslighting manipulating technique but mm-hmm. it happens within religious contexts mm-hmm. a lot the so. abusive
0: system puts out all of these efforts to preserve yes. the abusive system or Ex- the system yeah. exactly
2: keep the system going yeah. so and another one i, I think of and there's, there's several more but another one i'm thinking of is don't have or feel uh, have or show negative emotions mm-hmm. emotional clampdown is a huge one here so right um
0: that makes sense, one of the things I notice as as you're talking about those as you're talking about spiritual messaging is these are not doctrine points, so no. these are these are not theological statements, these are family system statements, yes, they are very much family so system,
2: but backed by theology
0: they often are, and, and that would that would be oh that would be a whole other can of worms mm-hmm. of like how certain types of theology and certain theological flavors can get more easily brought into abusive messaging than others. Uh, And I do think there are some differences. Um, We probably shouldn't go there now. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: There are. I would say that each set has a tendency toward different types of abuse. That would make sense. I think that that, that, because there are certain ones that you go, oh, my, oh, my, my. That's, yeah, you're set up for you're set up for rigidity, inflexibility, and all those things, and it's it's going to happen. Yeah. But, but you know, I'm thinking of different denominations, which shall not be named. Um, but, you know, some are going to be uh, more, much more open and fluid in certain areas, and much more rigid and constrictive and controlling in other areas, depending on the the culture and theology mm. of of the group absolutely
0: so, yeah. but I think the important takeaway from 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 this chapter is that these you know messages like um like you know don't have feelings you know don't call attention to the problem you know uh, the top down authority structure yeah. uh, those could show up in any theological statement in totally. any, any doctrinal statement in any any denomination any religion
2: exactly because they can be utilized God can be leveraged in all of those you know well your feelings were hurt well you know they use, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, you know, where's your peace that passes understanding? So, you know, all this quote, you know, they can use whatever they want to mm-hmm. legitimize some of these abusive messages.
0: So, Connie, do you tell us a little bit more, uh, as we're clinicians striving for a more trauma-informed practice, what are some triggers just in general to be aware of? Mm-hmm. What are some ways that well-meaning therapists might, you know, inadvertently trigger a, tra- in a traumatic reaction to... Yes. Uh, religious abuse?
2: Oh, this is my field and I trigger my clients sometimes as a therapist. I mean, because you don't, as in anything, when we've been traumatized, another person isn't always going to know exactly what the other person's trigger is. And it gets very messy with religious abuse triggers, especially if these people are still in a faith community, have a faith, believe in spiritual practices it it is truly agonizing because if you have if you have a a, a, let's say a war veteran comes home from Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere and he is uh, some Sunday morning he's been in combat and Sunday morning he's he's home he's with his family it's around the kitchen table playing cards having a great time and a car backfires outside and he dives under the table everybody gets that they're like oh dude you're fine and even as his body is diving he's like oh that was a car backfire that flat, flat fraction of a second where his limbic system took over and you know threw him under the table in self preservation and everybody gets that and and we don't say hey come walk with me i'm going on a walk today it's kind of it's right around a firing range don't worry though you'll be fine we're not going to say that <laughs> you know we're going right. to we're going to be considerate we're going to be aware explosions and backfires and gunshots are going to be really, really damaging to that person's brain who's dealing with PTSD. Well, you put this in a religious context, and it's much, much messier. And so I have clients who come in who are just in tears saying, I cannot read the Bible. I cannot listen to sacred music. I cannot whatever go walk in a church one of my dear oh my dear dear clients um he was a a, a minister a associate minister and he said Connie I was finally able to get back into a church building I said really I, in a service he said yeah I said how'd it go he said well I, w- I went to the men's restroom and vomited and then went through the rest of the service I'm like oh my goodness no 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 <laughs> you know inside I'm like Uh, his whole body was responding, saying, this is not good for you. Well, what do you do with that when you're still a person of faith, dealing in organized religion, you know? And and you still want to be a part of a faith community. And it's, first of all, maybe even beyond what you think you should do, it's what you want. But you can't, it's too hard on your body, let alone your whole, your, your psyche. And so it gets so, so messy Um, I've got a big long list of them in my book and religious, uh, excuse me, like uh, church or religious buildings, uh, religious services, sacred music, prayer. Oh, what a mess, that private and public prayer can be a trigger. Well, if you have any spiritual life left, you usually want to do something of that, but it can be horrible. Uh, Reading religious literature and sacred literature like the Bible, and um, then we get on to all kinds of other things that can be somewhere between annoying and triggering. You know, Facebook posts, <laughs> social media, mm-hmm. um, church signs. I always joke about church signs. <laughs> I always say, signs. they're not triggering to me. They're just annoying, generally. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: I mean, and to say nothing of, like, the actual people themselves, I the, imagine, The too. Christians
2: themselves and my clients. And, and I remember feeling this way. I'm thinking, I know they're good people, and I can't stand being around them. They're freaking me out. The way they talk just makes my skin crawl, and I can't, I can't do it. And it is it is extremely distressing to have this going on it's not a moral issue to avoid a firing range it's not a moral issue you know to be jumpy about a backfire it can feel like a moral issue to avoid components of religious practice
0: right again considering the stakes and i guess you know here's here's you know you know word to to anybody who's in spiritual leadership just you know you mind your power. It's Ugh. not, you're not just, you know, you know, conducting music and, you know, saying pretty words or like, you know, mobilizing, you know, um, you know, social activity. You're like, you know, messing with people's souls and their eternal fates and their sense of like, you know, what's going to be my eternal state? Yes. Uh, you know, does God love me? Do I have worth? Yes. You know, those are huge things, you know. And
2: it's easy as spiritual leaders to either overtly or subtly use fear, guilt, shame as motivators. Because they work. They work. Yes. It's
0: terrible, but it's true.
2: It's so true, and it's so destructive. And we do it thinking, well, most of, it, most of us have had it used against us. I mean, I've been in places of many types of spiritual leadership and, you know, speaking, teaching, pastor's wife, da-da-da, you know, quite a long list, missions, all that sort of thing. And we've all done it because it's a quick, easy thing, and it gets people to do what we want. And... Yikes. So not helpful. And it's very destructive. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: We're there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So, um, Connie, I'm I'm curious how this became a passion for you. Mm -hmm. Where did this come from?
2: Yes, well, there's always a story, isn't there? Yes, there is. I I always say, you want to know uh, pretty much what a what a therapist's story is? Check and see what they specialize in. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> And that's not, that is not across the board, but it is, you know, you guys both laugh because, be you know, it, yeah. yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I, w- I will vouch for my husband. I do not have a domestic violence background with him,
0: <laughs> 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 but yeah, I do.
2: But but strangely, you get connected areas. Well, religious abuse, indeed, is part of my story. And uh, the, the the quick version, and I'll just give a quick one here. And if you guys want to ask any questions, that's fine. Um the first my first exposure besides just systemic abuse which i think is kind of part and parcel sometimes to the conservative fundamentalism and evangelicalism that i did grow up in was when i was 16 year, years old uh the pastor of my home church uh pulled me aside at four to five different times and uh, kissed me on the lips and that I I don't know whether I would even say I was traumatized. I was very unsettled, extremely uncomfortable, and disturbed by it. Um, But what I see now in retrospect is it paved the way for a a much bigger uh, problem. And when I was 19 years old, I became part of a church that I adore. it to this day. It sounds weird to say, is probably the favorite church I've ever attended. Um, there, it was just magic. There were many wonderful things happening there, and um, it, it was also I found out over the long haul a very high control and rigid system that was deeply embedded, uh, patriarchal and. So I went to that church, uh, gave my soul to it. Oh, I loved it, I loved it. And I was 19, and over the next uh, uh, six years, I became very good friends with one of the pastors. He became a dear friend and a mentor to me. And uh, when I was 25, uh, from my perception, all of a sudden the tables turned, and he started making sexual advances. And he sexually assaulted me for nine months, and I really, I, I would ask to be able to tell somebody to get help, to get out. And he made threats of suicide if I did tell anyone. And 20, I would say 25% of the destruction of that whole story came from the sexual abuse. It was a big deal. 75% came with what happened afterwards, um, when, when news came out that this had been happening, um, the church leadership blamed me, they held me responsible, and they uh, had me stand up in two services and confess my sin, and uh, I was 25 at that point, and a very naive, <laughs> very naive 25 at that point. And then after that happened, I was told I needed to leave the church so that my um, abuser... And his family could mend and heal and stay there. That story, that brief part of the story, anybody who's listening hears all kinds of power differential all over the place. <laughs> um, and it was very exploited and very abused, that power was. And it I was a very convenient scapegoat and uh, it was very expendable. And it was... Uh I didn't really think I was going to thrive for probably about 10 years. It was about a 10-year process. I didn't know if I was going to survive for the first few. I went through severe panic attacks and severe suicidal depression through those first months. And I finally decided I was going to try to see if I could live and put away the suicidality. But it was a a long, long road back. I always say I wrote the book that I needed when I was 25 and 26 because I I had been hit by a train and I did not understand what it was. I didn't have a clue. I didn't even know I had been sexually abused. I mean, I just thought, oh, dear, I must have done something to make this happen, and I felt responsible for it. And then uh, I had not a clue what spiritual abuse was, what I'd been through. I just thought, well, they're trying to do the right thing. I, I defended the church leadership for Several years, (laughs) you know, and now, then I started telling the story outside of the church that did it, and people were horrified, (laughs) but the church, it was norm for the church, it was norm for the church I went to, it was, it was, they practiced regular um, public church discipline, so it it felt very normal, so it was, it was very, clearly to say, life-shattering, loss of reputation, loss of identity, I, I I didn't, I didn't even know if I was going to make it.
0: Wow, that's that's so deep. And there, there's so many, like you said, so many components in there. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I could feel my own recoil. It was like the, no, 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 they didn't do that. No, yes. no, no they didn't. They
2: did not. Yeah, exactly. They did. I oh. just told my story publicly uh, just recently to about 500 religious abuse survivors. I don't know whether in the history of anywhere there's been a meeting of that many, but I got to tell a three-minute version of my story. And I, I, I mentioned the sexual abuse, and everybody went, oh. And I mentioned them blaming me for it. Everyone went, Oh and I mentioned being kicked out. They're like, oh, you know, it's just this mm-hmm. incremental. Oh my goodness, uh-huh. are you kidding me? You know? And I wish I, I said to my husband later, I said, I wish I could have heard that. I wish I could have heard those gasps at twenty-five or twenty-six, yeah. you know? Yeah. I was like I wanted to go back and give that twenty-five year old a hug and say, Yeah. That's what it was like, you know? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think I could have benefited from like a book like this, like in in my early 20s, too, because I think, you know, my own process was like a kind of a 10 year process, also. Yes. So, wow. But, um, wow, that scene you're describing of like the collective gasps, I mean, that just sounds like just so. Well, I'm imagining like the sense of like, you know, cohesion, connectiveness of like, I'm so not alone. I'm like 500 people not alone. Right. Uh, Which just seems really powerful.
2: And Mm -hmm. they were feeling seen. By my story they were they were being validated they knew you know they they got it so yeah Yeah. it's it's quite a story and it's it's very dense and very compact and of course i just told the tip of the iceberg (laughs) but but, you know for time's sake that's there's more in the book you know i expound a little bit more
0: yes indeed so i i and i definitely want to reemphasize some things we've said just recognizing you know uh you know if you are a someone who is or has experienced any sort of spiritual abuse I mean you're definitely not alone oh um, not alone and definitely not at the end of your story either oh, no. um maybe the dark night of the soul but there's only up from there and there's a lot of it seems, it seems like there, there are a lot of ways to to climb out of that and yes
2: there are and I want to say the dark night of the soul it, it should have never happened to me the way it happened it was wrong that said I as as a person of faith at this point, you know, I believe that's also divine design, not caused, but divine design to allow transformation to take place in me. And was it beyond agonizing? Yes, I wouldn't wish it on on my worst enemy, even if they are going to be transformed. I, I, I really don't want that happening to anyone. That said, these are the things that do transform and and uh, the dark night of the soul. I think you know. I'm speaking as a 55 year old, having gone through, got, gone through a pretty severe handful of them. That being one of the major ones that uh, I I would not trade it now. And that sounds crazy to say, and mm. not because it should have happened, mm. but. Because there is redemption on the other side. I was
0: going to say that sounds like the redemptive voice it's, very much. So it's mm-hmm.
2: very much. It's one of it's one of the theological words that has not been tarnished for me yet. Is the yeah. idea of redemption. It's why I still identify as very broadly Christian. So mm-hmm.
0: I love it. I love it. Uh, Connie, thank you so much for sharing your time and your story and you know twenty years of labor. Yes. In, yes. Uh, so happy to be. I love what you
2: guys are doing. It's great to be here with you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Uh, where could a person find you if they wanted to reach out to you?
2: Uh, My website is ConnieABaker.com, so fairly simple, C-O-N-N-I-E-A-Baker, B-A-K-E-R.com. They can find me on Facebook under the same thing, Connie A. Baker. I have a page as well as a group. I do have a group for survivors, and that's called Overcoming Religious Abuse Community. And you can get my book on Amazon, Traumatized by Religious Abuse, and happy to happy to hear from people, uh, survivors, therapists, all of it.
0: All right, ConnieABaker.com.
2: ConnieABaker.com.
0: Okay, you heard it here, folks. And uh, <laughs> do yes, do check out the website, check out the book. Uh, it is a very very good book and should be on every counselor's shelf, no doubt. Uh, probably also every pastor shelf also mm. so it is well we'll record well hopefully this comes up before christmas but if you need a christmas gift for a pastor <laughs> okay anyway. a new year's
2: gift a valentine's day whatever right, right. works right <laughs> or just randomly or random gift exactly yeah uh
0: yes thank you very much so much for your time and thank the story. You, and uh dear listeners thank you for listening along uh let us know your thoughts and your comments and let's keep the conversation going We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcounselpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcounselpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcounsel. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going.